Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We are also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, we are halfway through the Sunshine Double. Indian Wells in the books. Carlos Alcaraz, champion on the men's side. Elena Rybakina winning her first WTA 1000. And an amazing guest, uh, got a chance to speak with Brad Gilbert. Yeah, so much to debrief this week from Indian Wells. What a fantastic tournament on both sides, on the women's. We're really seeing the emergence of, uh, dare we say it, like a big three in the short term anyways, with uh, Rebecca Sabalenka and Iga Sviantek. And then on the men's side, it, it kind of went according to script in terms of the two players you'd expect in the finals, Carlos Alcaraz and Daniil Medvedev. And uh, despite the fact that the final didn't maybe live up to what we hoped it might be, um, we're really seeing the continued emergence of a, a top-level talent on the ATP. And uh, and to have Brad Gilbert along to, you know, debrief a lot of this and, and share his insights, uh, one of the foremost experts and analysts in the game, not to mention what he accomplished in his playing career and, and coaching career, I feel like uh, we got a lot of good things going on this week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, nobody has better pedigree in this sport for me than than Brad Gilbert. So well-rounded in that sense as one of the best coaches I think tennis has ever seen. Great insights into the game. And of course, he was a, a great standout player reaching uh, world number four. Uh, we did speak to him on the Sunday morning ahead of both finals, but touched on plenty of topics. And how about right now we throw right to that interview. Here's our conversation with Brad Gilbert. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, and very happy to be joined by our guest tennis commentator and former world number four, Brad Gilbert, joining the show. Brad, thanks uh, so much for your time this morning. Hey, good morning. Yeah, thanks uh, so much for coming on. And uh, just to talk about what's happening in the tennis world, obviously, we're in the midst of the sunshine double and I don't know. For me, it feels like right now watching Indian Wells and maybe some of the previous events as well, at least on the men's side, it's like we're getting ready for the new or different generation of tennis, I suppose. Obviously, we saw Novak Djokovic win the Australian Open, um, but getting used to these familiar, young and incredible uh, new talents like Alcaraz and Sinner. I guess my first question for you is, you know, you see these players play and do you feel like tennis is in a, a strong, healthy place right now as we do make this transition? Uh, there's no doubt. I mean, if you told me probably at the end, at the start of the tournament, the three, four guys that we had, you know, in the semis of IW, I would have said, okay, I see that. And then here we are. And then you got a final that probably like it, you know, without Djokovic being here is kind of, you know, you know what you expected. But the only thing I was most surprised about before it started, I didn't realize Medvedev had never made the semis of either of the Sunshine tournaments. And he's so good on hard court, um, you, you know, so it's, you know, big, big week for him, big tournament. He's on a big run at the moment. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely surprising. Um, but of course, he's playing so incredibly well. Just to revert back to when you were a player and you reached a, a career best of number four, you know, your book title is Winning Ugly, but one aspect I, I think you were great at in your career was maybe maximizing your strengths and your potential. Which players on the ATP today maybe do you think do the best job of this? You know, everybody has something in their game, you, you know, where it can elevate you. 
a lot of, you know, tennis for a lot of players, you know, it's, it's winning when you're playing at 50, 60, 70%. How do you figure out how to win those matches, the, the, the close matches? I, I usually say, you know, for a lot of levels, there's about five matches a year, you know, you feel like you can't lose. There's about five or so that you go out there, you can't beat anybody. You just can't get a win. All the rest are usually the difference in those matches of figuring out, you know, how to get wins. And sometimes those wins turn into losses when you don't manage your game. Well said. And, uh, you know, looking at the sunshine double and and watching some of these players who are playing at 110%, it seems like, never mind 50 and 60. Like we really enjoy that Felix match versus Alcaraz the other night where both players are just covering the court so well. They're hitting the shots. They're both on. Do you feel like these young guys and, and Alcaraz in particular maybe are bringing the sport of tennis to a, a level we haven't seen before? You know, it's before Andre, when it was Andre and Pete, and then all the things that Pete did. Who would have thought that we would have gone, you know, three guys would have blown past Pete. And then, you know, I, I don't know that we'll get anybody to in my lifetime to blow past what we've just seen, but I just think that, you're seeing, you know, more athleticism, deeper in the game, doing things. Um, so I, I do think the game constantly gets better. And seeing uh, the explosiveness for Al- from Alcaraz, and I'll say in the in the men's, the, the the margins are just razor slim. They were they were so slim in that in the FAA Alcaraz match, so slim in that first set against Sinner yesterday. You, you mentioned uh, Sampras and Agassi there a moment ago, and I'm looking back on the number of players on the ATP Tour who've won the Sunshine Double in the past, you know, both Indian Wells and then backing up with Miami. And for hardcore tennis fans, this is a great time of the year. We haven't had big hardcore action since the Aussie Open. But I'm just wondering, we, we've seen it done so few times, to be honest, Djokovic a bunch and Federer a bunch, but otherwise, you know, not too many guys have been able to do the back-to-back who knows if we'll see it this year or not, but having success in, in Indian Wells and following it up in Miami with a strong run, does that lead to anything? Because then we follow it up with the clay court season and the grass. We don't have any more hardcore tournaments for a while. Do you put any stock into a player who's done particularly well at this time of year, having any long-term success over the rest of the calendar season? I mean, I mean, it's a good question, obviously, but you know, to be able to win these tournaments, you know, they got deep fields really deep fields so and you know to win a tournament like this means you're playing at an extremely high level um and to to do them back to back you know is so rare and the only ones that like pull off the doubles like you know rome and madrid you know maybe a rafa pulling these master series you know why it's happened so few between canada and cincy that double there, you know, it's a tough, you, you know, it's it, really difficult, especially in the one weeks where you, you know, you can play four or five matches in four or five days. So, and then the back ends of the, of these tournaments, you have a lot of matches in the second week. Very difficult. Very difficult. It was done more, I believe, in the early 90s. Yeah, Courier, Chang, uh, and Sampras, and, and Agassi in 01 as well, but... Uh... Yeah, if you you look now nowadays, other than a Djokovic or a Federer, it's yeah. it's hard for these guys to even tr- think about doing it. So, and to to win the Sunshine Double, you got to. I mean, you you're somebody that's elite 
level. Yeah, there's nobody that's winning the Sunshine Double that's not winning lots of majors. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, I guess to ask for you as a pro, when you played um, with the Sunshine Double, where where was that maybe listed um, uh, as important? You know, uh, how much did you sort of value playing those two tournaments? Uh, and I know for Miami, you, you had great success winning that doubles title in, in 1986, biggest doubles title of your career. I, you know, it's weird. It's like everybody's different. Like for me, you know, it's, it's funny. It's hard to even look back on my career so long ago. But maybe my biggest problem was I valued every tournament to say every tournament was a big tournament. Mm -hmm. You know, you know how some people like you prioritize or whatever. It's like, shit, I was like, OK, I'm in this week. It's a big week. You know, when you lose, you know, it's a Debbie Downer. It's, you know, so I didn't, you know, whether or not I was playing Canada or Livingston, New Jersey, to me, I kind of thought every tournament was a big tournament. I didn't, you know, I wish I would have. I understood it much better once I started coaching Andre and he started talking about peaking for big tournaments, for majors, for masters, anything. I never thought about peaking. I was like, man, just every tournament is a big week. Well, that's that's cool for uh, to hear you say that because our, our last guest was Layla Annie Fernandez and, and we asked her about the value of playing Indian Wells. And of course, she said it was unbelievable being there, but also having that same mentality of treating every tournament she played as basically playing a major or playing a slam. And I guess I'll transition that to asking you about our young Canadian women. You know, Layla, of course, making that U.S. Open final a couple of years ago. Bianca Andrescu's incredible 2019. Um, what do you think of the two of them in terms of their potential? I mean, in 2019, I remember you saying Bianca, you thought had maybe the best win, uh, forehand in the women's game. Where do you feel their games are at right now? And are they far from their best or, or quite close? Uh, well, with BB, I remember, you know, she had, she barely played in 219. I mean, but when she played, she dominated. I I, I called her win there. Um, and I felt like, okay, if she'd have gone to a very healthy rest of 2019, 2020, and, and, and never had all these things, I, I thought she'd already won three or four majors now. Now, now you're three and a half years on and, you know, her biggest thing has been being healthy, being con be able to play consistently week in and week out. And that's probably the biggest goal for her is to get up to where, okay, I've played a whole year, built up some equity. Now, you know, I'm ready to be back in the top 10. So it's been a while. Um, I still think that, that her talent is there. She's got a great forehand, plays, you know, good variety, good defense. But now it's just getting back to that level, you know, where you were. That's that's a hard thing for an athlete. Love your analysis. And, uh, and Brad, we've come to see you as one of the best analysts in the game out there. You, you've got the pedigree with your playing career and coaching career. It's the coaching I want to ask you about next, actually, and, and you've coached some of the biggest names in the sport. How often do you get asked to return and, and coach a player? And what would it take at this stage for you to make that happen again, maybe? Um, you, you know, it's funny, as, you know, with TV and kids, now I'm in a good place where, where I would think about doing it. I think there was a long time maybe I didn't want to go do it, like, just a little bit. I feel like to, to have great success doing it, first of all, the player has to have a lot of talent. I mean, 
I, you feel like as a coach, even a four or five, I can help get better every, every level, but to get to the upper echelon and seeing how good they are at the top of the guys in the women's game, you know, you, you, you can't just do a, a small coaching and really you, you got to do it, you know, meaningful, but yeah, I would do it now. I'm in a good place now. You know, I, I'd probably give it a shot again. Is there a particular kind of player you think you might be best suited to coach? I mean, Ben and I are always talking about, for example, and I'm not putting this to you directly, but we talk about Denis Shapovalov, of course, here in Canada, and what a huge talent he is. But maybe he just needs like a, a veteran voice that can sort of, you know, help him tap into that on a more regular basis. I, I'm just curious, is there a more of a young emerging player would be better suited for you or, or the type of player that perhaps has already shown that he's quite capable of being a top guy? I think more than anything as a coach, you, you know, you, you have to spend a little time like in practice, you know, with the player to, to see if you guys gel together and what, you know. So I, I think the best time, you know, starting with a player, you, you know, when you're have a some time off or you're in like, OK, it's the end of the year. Now we've got, you know six, eight weeks to kind of get to know each other, understand, and then start the season. I do think that, you know, that, you know, it's easy to say, God, you know, it'd be so easy to, you know, coach, you know, or have a player like Djokovic or have a player like Iga Svantec, you know, but there's, there's every level in coaching. And I think that's the, the most important thing is just trying to help a player understand how they can become better. Yeah, That's Brad, I, I keep it. I try to keep it simple on that level. It, it, you know, there, there's a zillion aspects of coaching, but that's just the one that I, you know, how are we simply going to get better and get more consistent? Yeah, Brad, I, I need to hire you to get me from five to 5.5 and, and making that, <laughs> that next, next sort of step of, of where you feel like. Um, you can easily plateau and you have maybe skill set and talent of, or sort of figuring out little details to how how to get just a, a little bit better. Uh, you mentioned Iga Sviantek briefly there. And, it, you know, despite her loss to Elena Rybakina here, it, it still feels like she's generally the favorite in any event she enters. If we kind of peek ahead to Miami, uh, is she the favorite there or, or do you view this field as maybe slightly more open and, and maybe sort of a, a short list of contenders? Well, last year at this time, this is when she started her dominant run. And then through the clay court season, it was definitely Ega versus the field. All of a sudden now this year, you know, that's three times she's lost in straight sets. And, you know, twice she's lost in straight sets on hard court to Rabakina. I think once we get back to the clay, she'll be an overwhelming favorite in the clay court season. And, you know, and if she wins, uh, you know, okay, there's three majors left. I'd, I'd still put, you know, the over-under at her at winning at least another major. Um, and if you win one major in a year, it's a good year, mm -hmm. you know. She, you know, can she finish the year number one in 2023? Yeah. But so far in 2023, she's not having the dominant start like she had in 2022. And that's because, you know, Rabakina and Sabalenka are both playing, you know, great tennis as well. Is that the makeup of a type of player that that has to beat? 
Iga, do you need sort of the big power baseline game plus the serve to beat her, or is there a different type of player who can who can take her as well? Uh, I mean, it, until, you know, what Rabakin has done, you know, nobody's kind of done that. It, you know, so it'll be interesting, you know, uh, what other kind of players or, who you know, who can learn something what Rabakin is doing. Yeah, I mean, the, the constant of tennis, you know, too, with now with so much video and things and analysis that when winning is contagious, you know, when you're winning and you're dominating, you know, that's you build up equity and, and you you get games out of the tunnel almost like. But doesn't matter what level you are, even if you're the highest, you're at the ceiling. If you lose a, li- a, a few times, then maybe people start to understand, OK, is there a way now to, to maybe what this person is doing that I can do? Couple more questions for you. Um, you know, as the uh, also, I didn't, I didn't, yeah. I didn't get to Layla Fernandez. Sorry. I mean, I like her potential. Um, she's small. She's athletic. She has lots of guile. Um, she played brilliantly in the in in that open to get to the final. But a little bit like BB, she struggled with consistency and staying healthy. You know, and sometimes in tennis, you know, and you see it in basketball. I say it in a lot of sports, the best availability is availability mm-hmm. and and in tennis when you're when you get hurt you miss time you know sometimes players do pick up right where you you left off but sometimes you just lose confidence from not playing yeah and uh now obviously her her ranking dipping that she's had to deal with some tougher draws and play some great players early in draws so we hope we can see her improve her ranking with the clay season around the corner. You know, we've seen the videos of Rafael Nadal training, for example, and and he's coming back from yet another injury at 36 years old. When he is back, is it still a, a Rafa versus the field scenario or, uh, you know, is, is he more vulnerable than ever at this stage? I mean, we got to see him play on clay this year. You, you know, actually last year, you know, he didn't play Monte Carlo. And then because he was coming off the rib injury and he kind of struggled in Madrid and Rome. And then you thought when he got to Paris, because it was maybe the first time, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm scratching my head, but I don't think so. It's the first time he ever came into Paris, not winning a tournament, not winning a clay court title. Then he goes on to dominate. You know, he had a couple of tough matches, obviously, but still he dominated the final. So. Any clay court tournament he goes to, you know, long as he can walk, I mean, he's the favorite. So, you know, so he'll start out the favorite until we see what happens. Yeah. And you have to think as well that that best of five format with the day off seems to just be so advantageous for for a Djokovic and Nadal, especially at, at this stage of their career, right? I mean, the Sunshine Double would totally be different. If, you know, obviously Joker was vaccinated or they didn't have the stance that they have, you know, until May, because if Joker's playing these tournaments, you still be thinking, hmm, you'd be really surprised if he wasn't playing today on Sunday or in Miami on Sunday, how good he plays in these tournaments. So he's still, in my mind, at 35, he's still the best player in the world. You know, Alcaraz and Medvedev are both right there. And Alcaraz is going to do great things, but still in a big match at the moment joker's the man 
Last question, just for you personally, what what's on your schedule for for commentating? Do you, are you going to be covering any of the clay events, and will you be down there for the French Open as well? I wish I was, but uh, you know, ESPN. We only have three tournaments now. We just have the Aussie Open, we we have Wimbledon, and we have the U.S. Open. I'll be doing a few matches in Houston, actually for ESPN Plus. So River Oaks. So I'll be down there um, doing a few matches there, and then awesome. Wimbledon's next next big tournament I'm doing. Terrific. Well, Brad, we always love your insights and analysis, and uh, thanks so much uh, for for taking the time to join the show. See you later. Have a great Sunday. There you have it, our interview with Brad Gilbert. I did find it very interesting that he he was not at all dismissive of the idea of making a return to coaching a player. Like he's he's definitely open to it. He's not going to give, of course, specifics on on who, uh, whether it be a, a men's player or a women's player, but he's definitely open to the idea. And I like the philosophy of maybe doing something in the off season. So you have that additional time to see if you gel with the player. Yeah, I mean, this is something I've been wanting to ask him for a while. And I've been kind of curious, like, why haven't we seen Brad Gilbert back out there coaching a player? It's certainly not from a lack of interest. You know, he's being, I don't want to say bombarded, but I would say probably regularly approached from players who were interested in looking to add something to their arsenal and their team. And and look at what he's done. Look at what he's accomplished in the past. Most notably, of course, what he did with Andre Agassi, what a partnership that was, and then uh, success with Andy Roddick as well. So he would be in, in high demand, and I feel like he'd be the kind of coach that would, you know, be fair but firm. He would push you. He would demand a high level of, of compete, uh, but he would also share a lot of wisdom from his own career and, and I think it'd be a super, super fun guy just to hang around with. I mean, just in those down moments when you're traveling tournament to tournament, I think he'd keep the mood light at the right moment. So I found it really encouraging to hear that he's ready to coach again. And if he's saying that publicly to us, you know, there's already probably been dialogue with some players. So it'd be really interesting to see where he ends up. I think he could add something to a player, you know, to really take them to the next level. And it, it sounds like you know, the way he was speaking he would want to partner with a player who's already a, a pretty decent talent, but maybe just help them get over that that next level to uh, to really take their game up a notch. I feel like you're describing uh, Denis Shapovalov. <laughs> well, well, I did drop that in my question too. Know. You know what I mean? And and clearly he's not gonna. You know, you got to keep confidentiality in terms of who you. Who knows? Maybe he's already talked to Dennis in his camp. Um, but but obviously, and I think I've mentioned it in the podcast in the past too. I feel like that would be such a great fit. Um, you know, for for Dennis to have a coach like Brad Gilbert. Um, but but there's dozens of players that you could say would be a great fit with Brad. And I bet you there's that many that have probably already come to the table or come knocking on the door to see if he might be interested. Yeah, I would think so. And in, just in touching on the current generation of tennis or that transitioning, transitioning generation of the players we are seeing today, and we'll get to Carlos Alcaraz, but talking about the evolution of the athleticism in this sport, how I, I really do think when you watch the matches today, it has reached like peak level in terms of the physicality and the athletes that we have on the court. I mean, you can always debate which generation of tennis is, is your favorite and who you like to watch the most, but um, these are like you know, highly finely tuned athletes that we're watching on a week to week basis on both tours at the moment. And I, and I like how he was mentioning how, you know, Andre and Pete brought the game to another level. And at the time who thought that Pete Sampras's 14 grand slams was, was going to be touched. Like who thought that in the modern era that Steffi Graf's 22 was going to be touched. And then along comes Serena and along comes the big three on the men's side. And suddenly, you know, I know Serena only got one more than Steffi, but still absolutely incredible. 
And then on the men's side, to have three players end up with 20 plus, also absolutely insane. And now you're going to have another wave that's going to bring it up. And it's it's the physicality, it's the conditioning, it's the dedication to the craft. Look, back in the 90s, you know, I don't think anyone would have said that Andre Agassi was necessarily a, a peak physical specimen or that he pushed himself, you know, in between tournaments. There was a lot of growing up and maturing that needed to happen. Look at a guy like Carlos Alcaraz. He already seems to have it all figured out in his mind in terms of what he needs to do to be his best out there. They're hungry, they're pushed, they're driven. They've got so much sports science behind them. Trainers, physios, the coaches, all sorts of things to, mm-hmm. to help them achieve peak physical performance. And of course, you know, we're not saying that we're going to see three players on the men's side reach 20 plus slams, but you're going to see level of tennis like we saw in some of those matches in Indian Wells that's just off the charts. Yeah, exactly. And having those resources, full teams for professionals, it's extending careers as well. We're, we're seeing great longevity in the game, which I think is uh, fantastic as well. We thank uh, Hotel X Toronto for this episode. And uh, let's get a word from our sponsor. Looking for the perfect urban getaway for your next family vacation? Look no further than Hotel X Toronto, the city's premier urban resort. With its state-of-the-art fitness facility, 10XTO, and four indoor tennis courts, there's something for everyone in the family. But that's not all Hotel X has to offer. With luxurious amenities from the rooftop pool to the award-winning Gurlane Spa, from the 250-seat cinema to the three-level sky bar, there's so much to see and do all under one roof. Whether you're visiting Toronto for business or pleasure, Hotel X is the perfect choice for families and individuals alike. Book your stay today at Toronto's only urban resort. Hotel X Toronto, experience the extraordinary. And we'll get to uh, Carlos Alcaraz and what this title now means. Third Masters 1000 title of his career. Remember, he's just 19 years old. Eight titles as a teenager, which is a second all-time on the men's list. Nadal had 16, which is incredible. And uh, defeating Daniil Medvedev in this final 6-3-6-2 in 71 minutes. Didn't drop a set all tournament. And since his return from that injury, which he initially suffered late last year, kept him out of the ATP finals, he's 14 and one with two titles one final and he's back to that world number one ranking if he defends Miami wins the sunshine double he will hold the number one uh, ranking going into the clay season just like incredible accolades no pressure Carlos but you you just have to win a (laughs) back-to-back HP event you know you got to complete the sunshine double in order to to maintain that number one but whether he maintains it or not I I think we're going to see him hold that number one ranking for you know extended periods moving forward even if Novak Djokovic and him have a back and forth this year, which, you know, I've said it before, would be absolutely fantastic for the sport to see the, you know, back and forth between the established 35-year-old veteran who holds, you know, 20-plus slams and the young emerging kid who's got one, but clearly he's going to add to that haul. Um, I, I just think it's it's super impressive how he's been able to just return from, you know, a bit of an extended injury finishing last year on the IR, uh, so to speak, and starting this year by missing the Aussie Open. And you'd think he'd come in and there would be an adjustment period, you know, having to catch up to his peers that have been going already for a month, you know, hard week in, week out. No, mm-hmm. like no problem. Wasn't a big thing at all. And and here he is playing this terrific tennis once again. That that to me is so impressive. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And, you know, not to to n- not only not lose a set the entire tournament, but he was playing the most informed player in the world in this final. Daniil Medvedev was on a 19-match winning streak and had won three consecutive titles coming in. I mean, no player was 
hotter right now on the ATP side than Medvedev. He had that big win over Novak Djokovic the previous week, had a great title in, in Rotterdam. So he was in terrific form. And, you know, I, I shared this just on Twitter. It was pretty jaw-dropping to see Alcaraz make Danil Medvedev look so ordinary. Uh, he looked like he had no answers, no solutions to what Carlos was doing and the maturity with the way Alcaraz was playing, knowing when to serve in volley, noticing Medvedev's core position and and burning him frequently with drop shots, um, mixing in variety with spins, hitting flatter when he needed to. Uh, I mean, it, it was just such an incredible performance. And you consider the age of someone who's 19 years old. It's one thing to be just a phenomenal athlete. We already know he's that. But to be this complete a player who sees the game already this well, uh, I think is the most impressive. And I wonder how much of that is coming from within, how much he realizes in terms of tactically what he has to do against an opponent like Medvedev, who's been playing such incredible tennis lately. And I wonder how much of it is coming from the the fantastic coaching that he has in his arsenal as well, which is uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, of course, an established Grand Slam champion, former world number one himself. You know, how much does he gain and draw from having someone like that in his corner? And I think, you know, that speaks volumes to what an established coach can do for you. And so for other players who are in that 10 to 30 range that want to make that transition up into the top 10, that could be something that's also missing is having a guy like that in your corner who's been there, done it, and can, you know, share that wisdom with you. Yeah. And uh, look, Felix Ojealiasim will touch on him because he had Carlos's number actually the last year and and led their head to head three and oh going into their quarterfinal matchup at Indian Wells. But uh, Alcaraz, uh, you know, I felt like he was the favorite leading into this match. He had been in better form. He had looked so strong his first few first few matches uh, winning comfortably while Felix had to dig incredibly deep to beat uh, Tommy Paul in a wild three setter third set tie break. Uh, but Alcaraz defeating Felix 6-4-6-4 and you know both both you and I watched this match uh, it was one of those evening sessions and I was just struck by like these are two just incredible athletes the points were so so physical like you know even though it wasn't like a long three-set match I was so impressed just watching the two of them go back and forth yeah it didn't matter to me that it didn't go three it felt like a three-set match and the margins were so close it almost felt like a boxing match to me, you know, how physical it was between them and how quick they were moving and covering the court. I almost felt like I was watching the match on on fast forward, like someone had hit like the turbo button on my PS4 controller or something. And, and I feel like, my goodness, if tennis fans from 20, 30 years ago could have seen into the future and watched this match, holy smokes, it, it looks like a whole different kind of tennis. And, you know, I know back then you had guys like Michael Chang who could who could really run, but these guys, not only can they run, but they can hit shots on the run. They can turn defense into offense. It, it was a fantastic match. Uh, I have no doubt that the rivalry was going to be closer than the three to nothing, you know, head to head mm-hmm. Felix brought to the table heading into this one. And, uh, you know, kudos to Felix for, for hanging with him and making those two sets so close really. Yeah, and uh, then we had the semifinals. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz beating Yannick Sinner 7-6-6-3. That was the rematch of their great U.S. Open match from last year, which was an epic five-setter. Some unbelievable highlight reel points from that one. Maybe one of the points of the year, which finished uh, with a perfect Alcaraz lob winner landed on the line. Uh, If you haven't seen that one, you'll find it on Twitter for sure. So uh, overall, just an amazing tournament on the men's side. Uh, We know Denis Shapovalov had the early exit. Felix and Dennis teaming up in doubles. I thought they had a pretty good showing, honestly. Um, you know, it was what quarterfinals? 
I think it's nice to see them back together again, right? Like that's yeah. a duo that, of course, Canadian tennis fans are going to love to watch and, and get behind them. And then you go back to the history of, you know, friends since childhood, coming up the junior ranks together. You know how Dennis crashed on Felix's couch summer of 2017 when he had that great run in mm-hmm. Montreal. Yeah, this just it's a it's a you know a heartwarming kind of story really to see the two of them back out there again. And we've only seen it four times in non-team competition for for ATP tournaments before. So I hope that's something that they're gonna throw in a little bit more often. And uh, you know, just to sort of end on the ATP here before we we transition and look at the women and the WTA results. But boy, I really feel like men's tennis is in good hands right now. And for all those naysayers the past few years who sort of lamented, oh, the the, the fact that Roger's going to be retiring and, and who knows how much longer Rafa has and Novak's getting up there. Like, I think the sport is in great hands. I'm super excited to to see what these guys can do moving forward as a group. Yeah, well said. Uh, I also love this crop of gener- generation of players too. So we'll be watching closely if we move to the women's side. As you said, we got an Aussie Open sequel. Uh, this final between Elena Rybakina and Arena Sabalenka. Rematch of that great final, which for me was probably the best women's match of the year so far. It was amazing. Elena Rybakina avenging that loss as she defeated Sabalenka 7-6 6-4 to earn her first WTA 1000 title. Uh, the first set was kind of everything. I mean, the margins were razor thin. Rabakina did have to save multiple set points. She came through in the tiebreak 13-11. So 24-point tiebreak is incredibly intense, especially because the two players, I find, have played such a similar game style. So a lot is riding on the serve. But I think Rabakina getting that first set kind of loosened her up. She got the early break in the second and was sort of comfortably in control, you know, didn't take it when she was up five, two, but took care of business at at five, four. And, you know, quietly she is building quite a resume with the Wimbledon title, um, the Australian open final, of course, and now a WTA 1000. It's really neat to see what these three are doing to the sport on the, on the women's side and kind of consolidating the power at the top. I don't really see anyone who can touch them at the moment, to be honest. I mean, when you look at the top five, top 10 on the WTA, you've got Jessica Pagula up there, who's you know generally pretty consistent, but hasn't had the same number of titles here. And, and Anz Jabur, who's missed time, and Caroline Garcia, who's not quite as sharp as she was a year ago. Coco Goff, who's getting, you know, off into late stages of a tournament, but doesn't seem like she can touch, you know, some of these players. And, and I just... Look, I love any storyline you're going to have on the women's tour. I think it's been great the last few years that it's been a little bit more open-ended, but I'm also ready and and happy to embrace, uh, you know, a women's tour where you have two or three players who are kind of going back and forth and really trying to take the sport to another level, which seems like the theme of this episode a little bit. The tennis just seems to be getting better and better, and I'm loving the loving the dynamic between these three players. Also got to give Rebecca a credit for being the only player so far this year to beat Sviantec more than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, which she did uh, six four six four uh, back at the Aussie Open, and she took that to even another level here with the scoreline in in Indian Wells, you know, showing that she's kind of got Ega's number right now, I guess. Yeah, look, she she sort of hit Ega off the court, which I thought was especially surprising because a lot of the talk with Indian Wells was the surface was playing slow, it was a slower court, and I think 
you know, if that was the case and Rabakina adjusting to that, you felt like, well, Iga is going to have a bit more time on the ball. We know how incredibly quick she is around the court. Rabakina won't be able to hit her off the court. Uh, but that wasn't the case. Iga was certainly not as sharp as as usual. And she tweeted saying she was dealing with maybe a, a bit of a minor injury. Not Maybe not the news she even needed to share uh, because she didn't take any medical timeouts. I think she intends to play Miami. But yeah, look, Iga, Elena, Arena are, are the top three in the women's game. Still for me, Iga, you know, she rightfully holds that world number one. What she accomplished last year, she's added to that resume this year with the title. And it, it takes a special performance to beat her. But it's sort of cool since that retirement of Ashley Barty. It's these three players who've collected the last, uh, what, four majors. Yeah, and that's definitely speaking volumes about what they're doing on the tour. And I just want to touch briefly on Bianca Andrescu, who mm-hmm. I thought really held her own in that match against Iga in that second set. Uh, she came out of the gate flying and, and held the lead there for a little period of time. And you could really see that Iga was getting frustrated by what Bianca was bringing to the table. And I feel like Twitter kind of was reminded, you know, tennis Twitter was kind of, you know, a buzz even after Bianca's loss um, of what she can do when she's on her game and how I think that that type of game and, and her style can really lead her back to the top 10, top 15 on the WTA Tour. Uh, We just got to see some draws that are maybe a little bit more favorable to her. But uh, she definitely made Iga look uncomfortable, and there are not too many women who've been able to lay claim to that statement this year. Yeah, I, I honestly thought that was her best match of the season so far. You know, even even in a loss, which was, uh, what, 6-3, 7-6, not really reflective even of how tight the match was, and that is a pretty tight scoreline. She had points for 5-2 in that second set, and I remember they were really jostling in the first set. She had an early break, another opportunity at a break, I think, at 3-all, and Iga got the game. Um, we know Shviantic just never goes away in, in any service game, even if she's down 40-love, 40-15, so that's something you really have to be conscious and aware of when you play her. One thing, I, I read a great article, actually, I'll give a shout out to Vivek Jacob, who wrote this piece for Sportsnet about Bianca, you know, trying to climb back to the top and uh, adding Christoph Lambert, uh, previous coach, back to the fray. And the reasoning behind that, um, some of it having to do with wanting to bring back a lot of her variety into her tennis again, like she felt like maybe the last partnership a partnership with Sven Gromfeld, they were focusing maybe too much on power tennis. We weren't seeing sort of the slicing or the high spin moon balls or drop shots or mixing it up, which if you look at the way she played in 2019, I thought that was one of her best assets. And I thought she did that incredibly well in the Iga match. It's like she took away the rhythm and the pace a lot when Iga, you know, wanted to hit through her. She didn't have the balls to do that. And that was a, a great change from Bianca. And I, I think I want to see more of that, honestly. Yeah, and I think it kind of relates back to what Brad Gilbert was saying earlier, which is, uh, I think, when he was referring to Leila Annie Fernandez coming back from injury. When you come back from injury, you don't have that same confidence. And, of course, Bianca's dealt mm-hmm. with, you know, quite a few struggles the last couple of years that have kept her off the tour for a significant amount of time. And maybe now she's starting to feel that confidence again where she can go for some of these shots and and kind of, you know, show us that repertoire again that we know that she has. And, you know, if we transition to the Miami Open, which is, uh, you know, pretty much upon us now, the draw's not doing her any favors, but I also look at the positive of opening against Emma Raducanu, and I think that's going to be a fun match to watch, and also one where Bianca's experience, I think, should come into play. Winner gets Maria Sakkari, someone who has not been playing quite nearly as strong as she did a year ago. 
That's, I, I mean, a blockbuster first round match if you get ever ask for one. A 2019 U.S. Open champion against the 2021 U.S. Open champion and two players who are immensely talented and probably trying to find their footing and figure out where they belong sort of on the WTA sphere. Both probably feeling like they are much, much better players than their rankings, and they are. Uh, and credit to Emma Raducanu, who actually played pretty well at Indian Wells and got a few wins under her belt. I, I sort of favor Bianca in this match, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I, I would, I, I would too. Yeah, I like the way she's playing, and if she can get a win, I'd love to see a matchup with Zachary because the last two times they played, twenty twenty one U.S. Open, just bringing this up, they played an epic three setter. Zachary won in the third, and they also played that crazy match in Miami in twenty twenty one when Bianca got to the final before losing to Barty seven six three six seven six. That match was like two hours forty five and I remember it finishing at like two AM. So if Bianca and Zachary, you know, uh, end up clashing and butting heads, you I, I expect an epic. Yeah, we're not missing out on that one. And uh, we should also just note Leila Annie Fernandez draws a qualifier in her opening round in Miami. Winner gets Belinda Bencic. Um, also someone who I feel like right now has shown a little bit dip from her early season form. Yep. And the other Canadian in the main draw is Rebecca Marino, of course, and she opens against Yulia Putin-Seva. Winner gets Coco Goff. So all the Canadians are in for some top-level tennis matches early. Uh, Carol Zhao went out in qualifying, unfortunately. And um, Catherine Sebov, uh, as we record this, is uh, still in the mix, having won, I believe, her opening round uh, qualies match there. Yeah, I saw that. So that's uh, already a great result for her. We'll see if she can qualify and get into the main draw. I love that the action um, makes such a quick turnaround and we get the tail end of the Sunshine Double in Miami. That means you'll be hearing a lot more from us as we continue our coverage. Thank you again to Hotel X Toronto, uh, the official hotel of Matchpoint Canada. Guys, we will talk to you next time. <laughs>